On September 21, 2011, the state of Georgia killed an innocent man named Troy Anthony Davis. He was tried and convicted for a murder that he did not commit. This is an informational podcast created in memoriam of Troy and dedicated to exonerating him and exploring the circumstances that led to his execution. This is The Struggle for Justice. Hi, I'm Susanna Compare. And I'm Lauren Sasson. Today, we will be speaking with the founder of the Troy Anthony Davis Project and our professor, Gemma Puglisi. Gemma is an award-winning media strategist and producer with more than 25 years of experience. Through her work at American University, she was able to develop a very close friendship with Troy. Not only was she an advocate for Troy during his time on death row in Georgia, but she has inspired students like us to become passionate about bringing an end to capital punishment in this country once and for all. Hi, Gemma. Thank you so much for joining us today. We're so excited to have you with us um, to talk about uh, your perspective and the role that you played um, in Troy's case. Um, so to kick it off, tell us a little bit about your relationship with Troy and how you met him. Absolutely. For, well, first of all, thank you all for inviting me. And I just want to say I'm very proud of all the work that you have done. Uh, you all have done such a beautiful job. And thank you for remembering Troy Anthony Davis and what he stood for. Uh, so, actually, I remember, uh, I heard about Troy's case, uh, actually, uh, 10 years ago. Uh, it was over the summer, and I was preparing for my fall classes, long story short, and I would always skim the newspapers. As you all know, my classes, many of them are based on uh, helping nonprofits and on important issues uh, that make a difference. And I have found that students are very passionate about working on these issues in the classes. And so it was summer, and um, it was on the second page of the Washington Post, and it was a story that ran that uh, a man by the name of Anthony Davis was ready to be executed in the state of Georgia. And the article, which was very brief, said that um, he was found guilty of killing um, a white police officer, uh, Mark McPhail, in Savannah, and that um, there was really no physical evidence and that he was being executed because nine witnesses had come forward to say that he executed, uh, excuse me, that he killed um, uh, Officer McPhail. And then the article continued and said that uh, as years went by and uh, Davis was in prison, seven of the night witnesses recanted. And despite the basically the case falling apart, he was still facing execution the next day. And he had gotten support from Amnesty International, Sister Helen Prejean, uh, Pope Benedict at the time, uh, the um, Amnesty International, as I mentioned. And so I, I was so disturbed literally by, uh, you know, there was a photo of him and the story. And I just, you know, was just so upset about it that I literally could not sleep that night. The next day I woke up and I didn't even go to my computer. I ran and got the paper um, that was outside the yard and I wanted to see what had happened. And I was relieved to find out that um, he got to stay. He wasn't out of uh, danger, however, they had just basically postponed and issued a, a, a kind of like a temporary stay for him. 
And so I was so relieved at that point. And I thought, you know, this is such a great project because I was so outraged about the case because there was really no physical evidence. It was, you know, as I mentioned, eyewitnesses and seven had recanted. And so I started making phone calls and I thought, well, let me talk to Amnesty International. Maybe my grad students can work on writing opinion pieces and maybe helping Troy Davis in some way, shape or form. And uh, I called Amnesty and um, spoke to someone there, and Laura Moore, as a, as, uh, as a matter of fact, who was very, um, uh, who did so much actually for Troy during uh, her years at Amnesty. And uh, she said, you know what, you should connect with Troy's sister, Martina uh, Carrera, and um, I will uh, let her know, or here's her phone number if you want to give her a call. Well, I was ready to go to class. I remember, um, you know, I was preparing, I was teaching summer school at the time and I was ready to go to class. And so I left Martina a voicemail and I was only gone like about an hour and a half in class. And when I got back, sure enough, I had a phone call and it was from Mar Martina. And that is how I met Troy. Um, one thing led to another and Martina, you know, really appreciated the work, uh, the, my interest in wanting to um, help her brother. And then when the school year started, my students helped write pieces about him and um, what was wrong with the case. And remember, we're not law students. These were students that were just very passionate about the injustice that they felt that he endured. And at one point, Martina said, well, do you want to meet my brother? And I'm, I'm like, well, but he's in prison. He's on death row. I can't visit him. She goes, no, I think I can get him to, I, I think I can get you to go visit my brother. Can you come out? There's a, um, there's a, uh, we're having a peaceful demonstration um, in um, October. I believe it was in October. We would love for you to come. So I literally flew out to Atlanta uh, or yeah, I, I flew out to Atlanta and then drove to Savannah and Martina, the prison was really far for the um, for the family, I mean, they would go and see Troy all the time, and, and from Savannah, and it's several hours to get to Jackson, um, where he was in Jackson in, in Georgia. And um, I met him, and I'll never forget the day that I met him. He was just a, a really there was something spiritual about Troy. He was very positive, very inspiring. Uh, very passionate about what was happening to him. And uh, he just, it, it, we just developed this amazing friendship. And we continued that friendship to the very end. Um, I was there, uh, I was one of the last people to see him before his execution uh, on September 21st. And uh, it was quite a journey. It was quite a journey. But he really opened my eyes to what really is happening behind really closed doors and what uh, pain and um, injustice so many people um, of color face um, on death row. You were talking about how inspiring and positive Troy was, but over time, what changes did you see in, in Troy as he spent more time on death row? You know, I, um, as time went on, I mean, he was always, this is the sad for me, there's so many sad times and one of the sad times is that and martina even said this he really believed in the judicial system he had no problem with saying you know i want to be tried again i want a jury of of peers to um you know to try me again i want to share my story i want to talk to them about what happened that night and he really never 
got it. He got an evidentiary hearing, but I honestly have to tell you that I felt that that hearing was just just a total waste. It's almost as if they were going through the motions to make it look like they were giving him a fair evidentiary hearing, and it was not. The judge looked like he was falling asleep at times. They had witnesses come forth, and they were antagonizing the witnesses and saying it was hearsay, and it was just really um, very sad. But for Troy, he really believed in the justice system, and he was hoping that he could get that trial to clear his name, and that never happened. And it was sad to me because he believed in this country. He believed in the laws. He wanted to go through the process, and the process failed him in so many ways. He always was so upbeat, but I have to say um, I saw him, um, you know, as I said, the day— I had seen him so many times. He had faced execution four times, okay, four times, and the fourth time, tragically, is when it happened. But I often saw when he was going through those periods where he was ready to be executed, there was always this amazing strength that I saw in him, this strength and so full of prayer and hope and uh, really dignity. And toward the end there was just such a sadness that I just felt that, you know, I, I looked at him and I talked to Martina about it and she said, you know, Troy won. Even though he was ready to be executed, she felt he had won because he had gotten support from millions of people, like such prominent organizations and prominent people. Celebrities were tweeting about his near execution on the grounds as we were waiting to hear and they kept postponing his execution. It was supposed to happen at 7, and it was delayed because they were waiting for the Supreme Court to make a decision. You know, his lawyers did whatever they could. They were extraordinary to, you know, prolong his life. And it wasn't until um, uh, a little after 10.30 or so that we heard that um, the Supreme Court uh, would, would not uh, change the decision. And... I, I remember Martina said, you know, Troy, Troy won. He, he won. And, and what she meant is he may not have physically won the case, but he, he won the support of so many people. But she also said to me, and she, you have to understand, she was battling breast cancer, and she was at that point in a wheelchair, and it was just so sad. She was very quiet, again, on the grounds of the prison, and just very quiet, very stoic. And uh, she said, you know, Troy's just tired. He's just really tired. And I, I understood that because he had, again, gone through this four times, four times. And at, at, at one point, you can't, you're str- you, you kind of lose your strength and your, your sense of hope. And um, it was just really sad to see this really positive, really incredible, inspiring human being really... Um, he was, he was just very grateful to all his friends and families and family members, and he spent literally most of that morning up until 2 o'clock, I think we were there, or 3 o'clock, um, just saying goodbyes, and we were all trying to be, you know, stoic, and, and, you know, it was just a really sad day. Yeah, thank you for sharing um, what that experience was. Um, 
obviously you have a background in communications, um, and we've seen um, media reports uh, from the day of his execution and just from his trial in general. I mean, you know, this case was uh, seen by many in the public and in the media. I mean, it, it was, you know, uh, shared as a part of the plot on the newsroom. Um, it uh, has definitely been shared in the media. So I guess uh, we wanted, we were hoping that you could uh, talk with us a little bit about how you would describe the media coverage of the case. Um, and if you um, have any insight um, or opinions on what that media coverage um, ultimately did to the outcome of the case. Mm, that's a great question. You know, when I met Troy, he wanted, um, it was really important for him to reach out to as many people as possible because he really believed in the more people who knew about his case, the chances of his surviving would be very strong. And you know, even up to the very, very end, when I mentioned to you I was on the grounds of the prison, uh, you know, we were seeing people tweeting, you know, Kim Kardashian and, and um, you know, so many other, you know, influential people, I should say, influencers were, were saying, you know, this is terrible, this shouldn't be happening. But I, but Troy did not know that. I, you know, it was like hours before he was being executed. And but he he got a lot of support. But I will tell you that as he got closer to the fourth execution, there there was there was a lot of media coverage. And the day of the execution, CNN was live for hours and hours. And I did not, you know, I was on the prison grounds, and I I had my phone. You can't bring a phone into the prison, but Later on, I was. We were at a church, and I had all we had all our belongings there, and I had my um, cell phone. But I didn't know when he died. I did not know that, um, and I, for some reason, I I don't know why, just didn't have the reports in front of me. And it wasn't until I got back to my hotel that I turned on CNN, and they said the time that he died, uh, and it was just, um, it was just really heartbreaking. But what I wanted to say is that as time went on, he got more and more media coverage, and he realized the importance of that because, again, he really thought that if he got a lot of coverage that he would probably, you know, not have to die. He would not be executed. And I think if we look at today and we fast-forward it, there's more social media. Remember, this was 2011, and social media was just kind of starting um, and so it's not as powerful as it is today. Um, and if you look at some cases that we talked about, uh, uh, just the past two weeks where someone was exonerated after 49 years or 40 years of being on death row, uh, you're, you're seeing that the power of social media is exploding, and I think it has really helped a lot of people that have, um, that have been facing execution. So, if we, if we had had all of that during Troy's time, I really feel like he would probably be here today, you know. Um, I feel like maybe, you know, he wouldn't have been on death row anymore. He probably would have been in the regular prison population with the hope of him being released one day. But that, you know, we're talking about, uh, excuse me, we're talking about 10 years ago. And it was quite different then. Mm -hmm. But even in the traditional media, something that I noticed a lot was the framing of Troy as a, quote, cop killer and, and talking about him in a way that really did not emphasize his 
potential innocence at all. Um, and whether it was also, you know, displaying him in a black and white filter, which we know um, the media tends to do to, to black men often and people of color often. Um, how would you say these factors contributed to the public's understanding of Troy? Because, you know, still there was so much public support. So usually we see the media framing public opinion, but it seems kind of contrary to public opinion. Right. Thank you for saying that because that's such a great point. Um, so this happened before the Me Too movement. It happened before Black Lives Matter. Uh, it happened before what we're seeing before George Floyd died and how he was killed. Um, so if you go back and anybody, whenever a, a police officer is killed, right, years ago, and even today, but because of what we're seeing um, with law enforcement, things have changed since George Floyd. But before that, you know, when you're in, the, in a southern state and you say that a, a um, you believe, and it's alleged, that a, uh, an African-American man may have killed a white police officer. Well, forget it. It's over. Because what you're going to see is they want justice for that person who was killed, and it was a white police officer. It's in the state of Georgia. It's almost like a losing battle. It really does. And you're bringing up a really good point. But what was so important was that I think the Atlanta Journal-Constitution did such an incredible job being objective and really kind of bringing to light of this guy d doesn't look, it doesn't look like this guy committed this crime because we're seeing that somebody else, people are saying it's probably this other guy who has a, a long rap sheet, right? And they covered it, it's on the front page. Whereas if you went to Savannah, Georgia, it was cop killer, Troy Davis cop killer, of white police officer, not alleged, but you know, automatically he did it. You know, we don't even care. That was the sad part about it too. Is Martina, again, Troy's sister, reached out to the McPhail family, and they didn't even want to deal with them at all. They just wanted justice. They didn't care if it could have been somebody else. They just didn't care. Uh, I remember I wrote some opinion pieces, and I was attacked um, in Savannah. You know, I remember. Someone and again, it's the early stages of social media. But I remember somebody's. I, I read something where somebody said it was letters to the editor and saying to me, "Well, don't come to the state anymore. We don't want you," you know, um, because I was supporting Troy Davis. Like, get out of our state. We don't welcome you. We don't want you here. So I think that's why I'm just saying. Fast forward to today, and we've seen what we've seen. You know, we've actually seen it. It has changed the narrative in so many ways. Uh, and it's outrageous because, you know, the sad part of, of the whole George Floyd thing, and I want to bring that up, it's been happening for a long time. It's been happening for so many, for so many years we've been seeing that kind of injustice. We just haven't seen it on, in videos where it's in our faces. But if you go to certain places, you'll see that we're, we're um, you know, the story about Troy Davis, too, is, you know, there were nine, seven or eight, nine witnesses, and many of them were young black kids, and they didn't want to get in trouble, and so one couldn't even read and write, and so the police officers were threatening them and saying, if you don't do this, we will lock you up, and so they were in, they were interrogated for hours and hours and hours and hours, and finally they were just exhausted and finally said that he did it when he did not. So you're dealing with so much racism that went on, and still does, but it's, you know, because of where we are today, I think it would have been a different narrative.
Absolutely. Uh, we we saw a lot of parallels in the traditional media, well, in the case and, you know, how race played such a big role in the case. Um, and then also in the traditional media coverage, we saw a lot of parallels um, to the case around the exonerated five. Um, yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, we just saw so many parallels in the, uh, the coverage and how um, a lot of media outlets you know, just framed it as they did it instead of being objective um, in their journalism. Exactly, exactly. And that's a really great point. There's a huge sense of responsibility of when you cover these stories. And um, I think that today, again, it's, it's, it's a different perspective. But I have to say, I was so grateful, as I mentioned, that, you know, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and CNN and Democracy Now! Uh, and NPR... Uh, interviewed Martina several times that there were so many outlets that did tell his story uh, and that's that's a great point that you're bringing up because it's upsetting that despite all that great coverage right and despite all the great support he got the state of Georgia decided to execute him and in the state of Georgia the governor doesn't make the decision it is the parole board and there are five people and I remember um, talking to um, Ben Jealous at the time, who was the head of the NAACP, who did an extraordinary job trying to help Troy. Um, he thought, and his um, understanding was that Troy, that it was looking good for Troy. And then the next day, apparently one of the board members decided to vote against the decision. And that was just really devastating. And so no matter, even, that's the sad part. He got... He got the support, the public opinion, the public was behind him. But at the end of the day, it was the state who had to make a decision. And that's where, in this case, the injustices were. And that's what's just so upsetting. I mean, Troy kept saying to me, you know, the Supreme Court, Gemma, could easily say, we exonerate him, he's off a dead road. The Supreme Court can make that decision. But what did they do? They threw it back to the state of Georgia, which always favored, did not favor Troy it would always go back to where, you know, the corruption, it went back to the corruption. And that was just so frustrating because we knew that, I mean, I always felt like it was, it was you know, we were going around circles because the, the sense was that they weren't gonna change their minds, even with all the support, even with all the media, all these prominent organizations and people that really supported him. It was almost like it was, it was great to see, but it wasn't the outcome that we had hoped and prayed for. And Gemma, we know your history being such a talented public communicator with such a long resume. Can you give us a little bit of detail about what you specifically did, what you personally did to advocate for Troy on a public level? We know that you involved your students, but beyond that, what else you did to, to get the media involved and get the public attention around Troy's case? Well, I think it was collaborative, to be honest with you. I think, for me, I just wanted to educate the AU community, because I know the AU community, uh, their mission is always, um, issues are important for us. You know, uh, our mission is to serve, right? And so this was such an important, and really, I thought it was an honor to help him. And why I was proud is, you know, you don't have to be a lawyer to help somebody who is in prison or in death row you have a voice. And I think, you know, for me, um, my students really loved doing it. You know, I, I would never force anybody to do anything. I told a story and I said, if you don't want to do anything, you don't. And all the students were so wanting to help. And I, um, I'm just going a little bit off course here, but I wanted to share that um, 
my role as a, as a professor is to make students understand what the issues are out there, you know, and I think the students did a great job. You know, I think Martina said that she, you know, the students helped, um, they had a petition going, they reached out to the parole board, they wrote opinion pieces, and I had a student in my class who was very open and said I could talk about it. His father was a part of a, um, a gang um, in New York, um, an Asian gang, and uh, his dad was on, um, was incarcerated, uh, has a life term um, in, uh, in, um, in California. And um, this student has, had not heard from his father in years. And through this project and hearing from Troy and getting letters, uh, Troy convinced him to write a letter to his father. And so he, for the first time, he was able to communicate to his father since he was like 12 or 15. And um, he was just grateful to do that. And it, it, it gave him closure. He realized that his father was not obviously the man he thought he was. And he thought if he reached out, it would be a great letter and a great relationship. And it was the opposite. He was just devastated. And he said, you know, I'm glad I reached out to him, but he's gone. My dad is gone. I'm not going to communicate with him anymore. But it, it helped him have closure. And so I think that's one of the things I'm most proud of. I, I think what I personally did was also to just write opinion pieces in, in some prominent newspapers and magazines about his case and, um, you know, just talking about it. And then just as, you know, as communicators spreading the word to young, the young generation, which is you, to show them how important these topics are and these subjects are and these cases are. And so I think for me that meant a lot. Um, I think we got the word out there. I think we, you know, we're in D.C., which is really great. Students came with me to, um, we had some students who came to demonstrations that were peaceful. Uh, so it, I, I even had a student who went on her own, two students who wanted to visit Troy and did on their own after the class, you know, after they took the class. They wanted to go and visit him and see him, and that was great, and they wrote about it too. So I think that's our role too, you know, as communicators. Oh, I know. And one other thing, yes, I, one other thing, as I forgot, which is really important, is uh, through my working with Troy, Troy wanted me to reach out to Sister Helen Prejean, who, as we all know, is wonderful and is, um, you know, wrote an amazing book called Dead, Dead Man Walking based on her experience um, being a spiritual advisor to someone on death row in, in Louisiana. And Troy said, you know, I would love to meet her. And uh, long story short, she was in Georgetown giving a, she was part of a panel discussion, and I loved meeting her. And at the end, she said, you know, I would love for you, I have a play that's going around colleges based on my, my book. And, um, she, you know, she said, do you think AU would be interested? And so we did. American University's theater department did the production of Dead Man Walking, and it happened to... Um, it happened to take place literally the week that Troy died. Um, it was so powerful. I, I had a hard time sitting through it because I had, I had just come back from Troy's execution and his funeral, and the play was here, and the students did an amazing job performing it, and I remember sitting in the theater watching it, and it, was just, it just brought everything together in closure. So we were able to, again, to... Um, have students understand about the case, yeah, you know, just about 
what it means to be on death row. But also, Troy had the opportunity to meet Sister Helen Prashan, and he uh, called me immediately after meeting her. She was there for a good two, three hours, and, and he said that experience was incredible. So to see, it just, you know, it just, it, it blossoms, you know, you just hear about something and you just talk about it and then it just spreads like wildfire and, and the whole community gets involved and then DC hears about it, family and friends hear about it and then it just keeps, it's just an amazing um, experience. And earlier in the semester, you talked to us a little bit about Troy's last few days or last few months on death row and you told us about um how they they wouldn't give him pens to write letters would you mind just taking a maybe not that story specifically or if you want that story but um would you mind just giving us a few briefly a few anecdotes about sure, Troy's life on death row sure um well that it was yeah it, you know the thing is some of us experienced this a few times with him knowing he was going to be executed and for me I think it was the second time or the third time, no, it must have been the, the second time that, um, you know, we knew he, he might be executed. And, um, you know, when you're on death row, they, when you're getting closer to the day of your execution, they take you out of your cell and you kind of say goodbye to all the other prisoners that you know, and they put you in isolation because, and they watch you like hawks because they want to make sure you don't kill yourself because they want to kill you. And, uh, you know, Troy's trademark was always writing letters. He wrote, I have so many letters in my office that I have, I have a box of letters through the years that I've known him. He would write to students, family, and friends. That was his way of communicating. And as time, you know, as he knew he was getting closer to the fourth execution, you know, scheduled execution, um, he, the prison, you know, to make it harder for him, would not even give him a pen. They just basically gave him the filter, the, the filter of the pen. And, and he, rather than giving him a bunch of paper, they, he would have to write the letter and ask for another pen and ask for another piece of paper. And this went on and on and on. And I remember reading his last hours and, you know, he was very tired because he was up, you know, all night and they were, you know, watching him. And whenever he would fall asleep, like he shared this with me, like right before he, you know, the last few minutes that I saw him, he goes, you know, I'm really tired. He goes, every time I try, I'm ready to fall asleep, they wake me up. They're like, Davis, Davis, are you up? Are you up? Because they want to make sure he didn't kill himself. So even if he tried to rest, he couldn't because they would wake him up because they thought he was not, he might be dead. So those hours were really pretty agonizing, I think, for him in a lot of ways, since he's been through it, remember, four times. And that's, that's why I understand Martinez's thing of he's just really tired. And it's really terrible because I can't think of any other cases where somebody's faced execution four times. I mean, what is wrong with our laws that we can't get this straight, that somebody's got to go through this? And it's not only that. You have to understand something, too. It's the families. It's the families of the victims. It's the family of the person that's on death row, and it's worse for them when they know that they're innocent. That's the thing that was really hard that I remember more than anything, and that I had such a hard time, is I remember there were cousins maybe of Troy, young, wonderful black young men that would say bye to Troy, and then they would come out after seeing him and sob and sob 
And I thought, you know, what is, they probably feel like this could be me. I'm a young black kid and I could be found guilty of a crime I never committed, but because I'm young and black, this could happen to me. And I just remember hugging this kid, oh my gosh, for the longest time trying to comfort him, he just completely broke down. And I just felt so angry. I was so, so angry at our judicial system. We're so much better than that. And, you know, it's just, uh, you know, you don't want young people to lose hope. You don't. And when I saw these young black kids, I just felt this is not, this is not what they should be looking at. They should be looking at, they should be looking at their whole world and what's ahead of them and all the great things that are gonna be ahead in their future. This is not how they should be thinking their lives are gonna be. Thank you for sharing that story. Um, I know that we're, we're running out of time, so I just have one last question, if that's good. With, okay. Um, I was wondering, what would you like people to know about Troy as a person, not Troy as someone who was on death row, not Troy as, um, you know, someone who was executed. What would you like people to know about Troy as a person that they don't know already? Well, that he, as I mentioned, he was dynamic. He was very religious, very spiritual, very hopeful, very caring, um, and just, he, you know, it's, it's incredible because he knew about his case, but he kept saying, this isn't just for me, it's for the other Troy Davises that came before me, as you mentioned earlier, and those that will come after me. And there have been many that have come after him. And sometimes, and he didn't share this with me, but he did share it with some other people. He felt sometimes as if he was somewhat the chosen one to experience this so that maybe the world would wake up and understand that things need to change. Again, you know, he was found guilty, found guilty of a murder. There was no weapon. It was all based on eyewitnesses. And that's a hard thing to prove. And so he was very well aware of that. But he was so dynamic. And I do want to share with you, we really don't have any video of Troy that anyone has seen. You've heard him, his, you, you, you know, you've heard the audio of him, but you've never seen him. And that is because Troy was so dynamic. He was a nice looking guy. He was funny at times. He was so charismatic and the prison knew that. And if they got people coming in with cameras to show who he was and the, his integrity and how persuasive he was, they were afraid that he might be let go. And I, that tells you how bad and corrupt it was. I, ca I can't think of any, there are no videos that I know of that exist of Troy during his time on death row. They, they've done such a great job of not allowing cameras in to interview him. Think about other TV shows and news or shows that you have seen where you have seen people on death row and they've done documentaries and all of that. There is no video that I know of, that I know of, that actually showed Troy being interviewed. Do you know if they tried? They did try. They did try. And I know that there was a, a great 
filmmaker that was there trying to get some interviews. And I honestly don't know if he ever was able to. But just for, I know that there were some top news organizations that wanted to interview him and were not allowed to go in. Thank you so much, Gemma, for first and foremost, all the work that you did for Troy and uh, for being here with us tonight and sharing your experiences. Yeah, your perspective is so valued um, to in sharing Troy's story, and we're just so grateful that we had the opportunity uh, to talk with you, to pick your mind a little bit, um, and we're just so incredibly in awe of you as our professor um, and the work that you continue to do um, to, to fight for justice, uh, not just for Troy Anthony Davis, but for so many people who are on death row. Um, so we're just very grateful for you, Gemma. Thank you so much, and I'm so proud of all of you. And thank you for doing this in memory of Troy. I know he would have sent you all a letter thanking you, so thanks. This has been The Struggle for Justice. This podcast was created by the PR portfolio, Troy Anthony Davis Project, a student-run project from the American University School of Communication. For more information about the death penalty and the Troy Anthony Davis case, please listen to some of our other episodes. To learn more about the project, visit the description below. There you will find our website, which contains links to useful resources and our petition to posthumously exonerate Troy Anthony Davis. This podcast was edited by me, Evan L.H., with Ben Deeth creating the original intro and outro music. A special thank you to Katie Pierce for booking all of our guests, Donya Kosradad for designing our website, and Liam Thurman for setting up our petition. Our hosts are Susanna Compare and Lauren Sasson. We will be ending with the quote from Troy that inspired this podcast. The struggle for justice doesn't end with me. This struggle is for all the Troy Davises who came before me and all the ones who will come after me. I will not stop fighting until I've taken my last breath.